just wonderful, isn't it, to be together in the house of the Lord, singing his praises and hearing his word, just being refreshed in our souls by all that he is and all that he means for us. Uh, today's scripture reading is found in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4. And if, you've, uh, if you don't have your Bibles with you, that's okay. Um, we've, we've got pew Bibles just in the back of the pew that's in front of you. And so you can grab that and you'll find today's passage likely on page 1016. And um, I also want to just let you know that if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can take that pew Bible today as your own. We've got some extras that we can uh, fill in that slot, but we, we'd really love to have, have you have a Bible. So you're welcome to that pew Bible. Um, 1 Peter chapter 4 is found on page uh, 1016. And we're going to be reading today from verses 12 to 14. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is the word of God. Uh, happens to be one of my very favorite preachers in all of the world. It's my father, Don Theobald. And uh, mom and dad are here visiting for the weekend. And we're also thrilled to have our in-laws here at the same time. And it's one big happy party uh, at the Theobald house uh, this weekend, but we're especially glad that that dad is coming to open up God's word to us. He was, uh, he meant to come back in April around Easter, but was providentially hindered, so uh, glad to have him today. I'm surprised Dave still has to say that. Um, we don't feed him. Uh, he doesn't live in our house, so he doesn't have to kind of suck up and say who his favorite pastor is, but uh, we're very thrilled to be here. Uh, we send a little present on a head, it's called smoke and haze and things like that, but you actually got back at us, it took us at least two hours to get across the American border on Saturday to come and visit, so it's so good to be here, uh, good to worship this morning. Um, it used to be that we came to visit our son and our daughter-in-law, but uh, they made the fatal mistake of having grandchildren, and so now we come to visit the in-laws and to visit the grandchildren, but we're glad that they're there as well. Would you take your Bible, please, and turn to the book of 1 Peter chapter 4. And if you're a note taker or a doodler, you can flip your bulletin over and there's a sermon outline um, on the back. A 
think I'll just read the passage again. It's a great passage. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We find ourselves in the book of 1 Peter, and it's really kind of a survivor's manual. Uh, this book is written by the apostle Peter to people who are under terrible persecution. They have incredible problems, and their only fault is that they have turned from their sin and they're trusting in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And in the first part of chapter 1, we see that these believers have been scattered. They've been dispersed throughout parts of the Roman Empire. And uh, they have been forced to leave family, to leave homes, to leave work, to leave uh, very familiar surroundings. And they've been forced to flee for their life purely because they believe in Jesus as their sovereign and their savior. Increasingly, that is becoming a crime in the Roman Empire. And in the next 250 years, there will be 10 waves of persecution that will come from the Roman government to the believers of the Roman Empire. Now, what we want to do this morning is see how can we triumph in our trials, not triumph over our trials, but to triumph in our trials. And if you are a note taker, there's an outline there. We want to see in the next two or three hours before we finish um, three things about this passage. We want to see, first of all, some characteristics of our trials, and there will be three of them. Secondly, we want to see the command for our trials. And then thirdly, about 1.115, we will see the comfort in our trials. So it will be worth staying for the end. That's the best part. First of all, then, some characteristics regarding our trials. And they're all found in verse 12. The first thing we need to understand about our trials is that they are an expression of God's love. Did you notice how he began the verse? Beloved, agape, dearly loved ones, we have a tendency to think that when we're going through a difficult time as a Christian, when we're going through problems and heartaches and heartbreaks, that God is probably angry with us, that God is probably mad at us, that God is probably punishing us for some terrible thing that we have done. Now, the Bible makes it very clear that God does discipline his children, but we need to understand that all of our sin, if we're a believer, has been dealt with legally and justly in the Lord Jesus Christ. The father never gets even with his children. He never pays them back. He never settles the score. In fact, it is the very opposite. The Bible says that whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. 
when David was younger in our church, we have four children, and um, of course, dad's up here, so mom's looking after four kids, which can be kind of difficult on a Sunday morning. And sometimes David would get goofing around with some of his buddies. And um, when we went home from church, uh, David would be called into our bedroom and he would be disciplined. And he'd say, but dad, uh, Phil was goofing around and Tommy was goofing around. You never did anything to them. And I'd say to Dave, the difference is Dave, you're my son. I love you. There are kids in the church, and hopefully their parents disciplined them. But you see, the Bible makes it very clear that because God loves us, he just doesn't leave us. He doesn't spoil his kids. There are no spoiled brats in the kingdom of God. There are no kids who get away with everything. God, because he loves his children, brings trials into their life. And as Ethan said earlier, some of them are little trials and some are big trials. Some are temporary, some might be lifelong. But we must always re remember, if we're going to triumph in our trials, that they are expressions of God's love. Once we get a stinking attitude about God, we're going to be in trouble. And we must always maintain. And what we will see today from this passage is that the way to handle our trials is theologically. It's biblically. It's that we need to bring to our mind and our heart and our responding mechanism great theology that directs us and causes us to go in the right direction. And the first thing we need to remember is that all trials are an expression of God's love. Beloved. Secondly, we need to see that trials are to be expected. Look what it says. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial, not if it comes, but when it comes, as though something strange were happening to you. We're to expect that there's no fine print in the Bible. There, there's no legalese at the bottom that you just kind of look at, don't understand it, but sign the document anyways. And then found out later that there's a catch. And the Lord Jesus Christ, often when he was preaching the gospel and evangelizing, and people were tempted to come forward, he said, just a minute, just a minute. You know, even birds have a nest and fox have a place to lay but the Son of Man has nothing. If you're going to follow me, it will cost you everything. Our brother again read about the pearl of great price. It cost the merchant absolutely everything. And we are never to think that we're basically good people with a few personality flaws. And once we correct those, um, life should go smooth. We should see the very opposite. We are now transformed from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. We used to be the children of the devil. We are now the children of the living God. And the devil doesn't shrug his shoulders and say, well, you win some, you lose some. Trials are to be expected. They are not a strange thing. 
And I'm sure you've caught yourself thinking, if not saying, like I've thought and probably said, I can't believe this is happening to me. And the Bible says, don't think like that. It's to be expected. There's nothing strange about believers suffering because God loves them. In fact, the truth is, if you're not suffering, not all the time, of course, but if your life doesn't know periods of suffering, you might not be a child of God. You see, I never hauled those other kids in and gave them a whooping at our church. They weren't my kids. And you see, God it seems like the world's getting away with all kinds of things. And yet the children of God go through very, very difficult situations. So, trials are an expression of God's love. Secondly, they are to be expected. And thirdly, sometimes they're excruciating. They're incredibly painful. Look what he says. Beloved, don't be surprised when your baseball team loses or when you lose a dollar or when, no, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. We don't know, of course, when the book of First Peter was written. Back then, they didn't say July 2nd, 2023. They didn't know what year it was. It was people later looking back at the coming of Christ who said, okay, we're going to date everything from this. But in 64 AD, the year of our Lord, in a period of four days, July 19th to 22nd, the emperor, Nero, burnt down most of the city of Rome and then blamed it on the believers. And that began a period of persecution, and some of it was terrible. For example, they would gather believers, take them to the Colosseum, put animal clothing over them, and release the lions. And they would just maul them to death. Um, Nero loved gardens. And, of course, they didn't have electric lights, so at night what he would do is he'd put a Christian, cover them with tar or pitch, and then light them on fire so that they could see the beautiful gardens. And you might think that is incredibly horrific. But if you know anything of church history, they've only got better at being horrific, haven't they? And you think of all the cruel things that humanity has done in the last 2,000 years. And a lot of it has, has been done against true believers. They say that there were more martyrs for Jesus Christ in the 20th century than the 19th centuries before that. I have a sneaking suspicion we're not going to get through this century without maybe breaking that record. This world is not a friend of grace, is it? Not even wonderful countries like Canada and the United States. And so we need to be forewarned so that we will be forearmed that there will be trials and some of them will be excruciating. They'll be like fiery trials. But notice they're designed to test us. 
You see, the Lord's concerned about one thing in every one of his children, and that is their faith. Because it's by faith you are saved. And Peter will say in the first chapter of this book, your faith is more precious than gold that perishes. And it will be tried. And God tries our faith to do two things. First of all, to prove that it's true saving faith. Because not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, is truly saved. And secondly, he's not only going to prove our faith, but he's going to improve our faith. It's an amazing thing. Uh, the Lord is always trumping the devil. And what the devil intends to do negatively, God uses that often to do the positive. And for the true believer, it's our trials that really strengthen and give uh, vitality and a robustness about our faith. So, some characteristics. Expression of God's love, they're to be expected, and they can be excruciating, incredibly painful. Secondly, the command in our trials. Now you would think there would be all kinds of commands how we are to cope and handle and respond to trials. And of course, the Bible has lots of those. Obviously, we're to give God the glory. We're to, in everything, with prayer and thanksgiving, make our request to the Lord. We are to love even our enemies. But notice the command in verse 13. But, verse 12 tells you the bad news. But is a word of contrast, but your response, my response, is to rejoice. Now, this word rejoice here is a verb, an action word. It's an imperative. It's a command. It's in the second person plural, so that means y'all, all of us, are to rejoice, no matter what our trial. I've been a pastor for many years, and... Uh, David didn't give me all these gray hairs. Uh, other people gave me some of them. Other kids in the church gave me some, and other kids' parents in the church gave me some gray hairs. But at least I still have some hair. And I don't know how many times people have sat in my study and said, you know, Pastor, I know what you're saying is true, but in my case... And they had an exception. I wasn't married to their wife. I didn't have their kids. I didn't, you know, and you just fill in the blank. And they think that they get a pass because their situation is absolutely unique. And the Bible says, eh. Survey says, no. This command is for all of us, and it's in the present tense, which means that what should be true about my life every day that I go through a trial is that it is characterized by rejoicing, by a deep-seated, deep humanly impossible, but spiritual gift of joy that only the Holy Spirit can produce. And I'm not to be a glummy Gus. I'm not to be a sad kind of person. I'm not to be, and again, we have different personality types. 
But you know, I've made it for many, many years. My first responsibility every morning after going to the bathroom is getting myself joyful before the Lord. That's my first responsibility. And in a sense, I better not leave until I'm in the direction, the trajectory of being joyful. Now, the question, of course, is how do we obey this command? Do we just be phony people? Uh, when I was a kid, I'm not recommending this, but when I was a kid, I did very little reading, but when I did read, I read mad magazines. Anybody ever read those? Oh, you're well-taught church, or some of you aren't being honest, but I, I, I read Mad Magazine, and it was kind of a satire on the mess that the world was in, but there was this guy, Alfred E. Newman, who had this goofy grin, and he was always kind of happy, no matter what was going, and his motto was, what, me worry? And that isn't what the Christian is saying. The Christian is saying what's going through my life at this point is incredibly painful. It hurts. In some cases, it's physically painful. In other cases, it's emotionally, psychologically painful. Some of the trials that we go through will never be resolved in this life. But I have been commanded to every day rejoice in the Lord. Now that's not just here in Peter, of course. Again, Ethan read it this morning, James chapter one. In all of your trials of various kinds, count it all joy. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice, I'll say it again, rejoice in the Lord. Joy is to be a characteristic of the people of God. And remember, it's not a personality type. It's a deep-seated joy in the Lord who loves me as he sovereignly brings these providences into my experience. Now the question is, where do I get that joy from? I can only be phony for so long. You know, kind of smile and, how are you doing? Oh, great, isn't it wonderful? No. Theology comes into play. And there are th two things that produce supernatural joy in the believer. Notice the first in verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. There is a present aspect that produces joy, and that is that I have the great privilege of suffering to some degree like my Savior suffered. He is the only person in human history who was absolutely innocent, who never sinned, never had a dirty thought, never mouthed off at his mother, never yelled at his sister, never swore, never punched somebody, never, he always was holy. And I have the great privilege, and remember, he was holy for me. And he suffered innocently for me, to make it personal. That he endured all that he endured, not only from people, but from the very Father who's loved him for all eternity. 
he endured and extinguished and exhausted the wrath of God so that I wouldn't have to endure it. Absolutely astounding. And when he saves me, he's saying, Don, now listen, I suffered for you. And one of the great, great privileges of being a Christian is suffering for me. Our temptation to think, well, I don't deserve this. I didn't do anything wrong. In fact, he'll go on to say, make sure you didn't do anything wrong. You are to suffer unjustly and unfairly. And the fact that I, in a small way, can enter into the experience of Jesus Christ while he was here on earth is wonderful, isn't it? And you see, what produces true joy is theology, good biblical theology. We must remember that Christianity is not a religion. You don't join a group. You're not kind of part of, you know, whatever it might be. But you come into an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And what I've noticed with my children and with my grandchildren, that who you like, you want to become like. And it's a great thing to be able to say that for Jesus, in a very, very small way, I'm suffering like Jesus. And that gives me great joy inside because it's a proof that I'm truly saved. Because the unsaved don't want to suffer for Jesus. But the true believer so loves him. Peter will say earlier in this book, having not seen him, we love him. Having not seen him, we trust him. And to think that he gives me the privilege of suffering for him and like him. But there's more that fuels this rejoicing, and that is found in the latter part of verse 13. But rejoice, and as far as you share Christ's sufferings, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The game isn't over. We're still in the midst of all of this. I am not only to celebrate the present sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I am to rejoice and celebrate right now the future glory that is coming because of Jesus Christ. The believer is the only one who's on the winning team. We may not have much money. We may not have a lot going for us. We may come and you know hang out with a bunch of people like us, sinners, saved by grace, but there's a great day coming when we will know that this book is really, 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 really true. I'd rather be one of those suffering Christians in First Peter than Nero, wouldn't you? I can't imagine what Nero has endured already, and the worst is yet to come. And his worst Sins will not be all the wasted money of the government, all his fooling around with people. His worst sins will be how he treated the people of God. And oh, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come and he's going to demonstrate he is indeed the Lord and sovereign and savior and king and everyone 
every angel, every demon, every person will instinctively bow the knee and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And of course, there's an eternity of celebrating for the people of God. So our command to rejoice in the midst of our trials is not kind of a goofy thing. It's a very, very theologically informed thing that both in our present relationship with Jesus and our future relationship with Jesus, all of those things produce unceasing, increasing joy. So you may want to check the dipstick of your heart and check the joy level. When we rejoice like the Bible tells us to, then we will pray more correctly. When we're going through trials, the temptation is to pray that God will change the situation. And of course, the, my, the main reason we're going through the trial is so that God will change me. And once God has been changing me, I might see the circumstance very, very different. Thirdly, the comfort. What's the comfort in our trials? Well, that's found in verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Now, blessed there isn't what you do when somebody sneezes and you say, bless you. Again, bless is a great theological word because in Genesis chapter 1, God blessed everything and he blessed the human race. It's a word, it's a benediction of the, the goodness of God going out on a land or a person or whatever it might be. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, they were cursed. Now, that doesn't mean God was up in heaven, you know, mumbling away to himself and throwing stuff around and saying, those idiots, what are they doing? Curse is a word of judgment. And, of course, when God speaks words of either blessing or cursing, they will happen. I was born into this world cursed. I was under the judgment of God. Amazingly, Jesus Christ, who is the blessed Son of God, on his baptism, the Mount of Transfiguration, what does the Father say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You listen to him. The blessed one on the cross became the cursed one. God, God treated Jesus to make it personal as if he was me, so that he might treat me as if I was Jesus. And the astounding thing about the believer is in the Christian life down here, everything before I was saved that was a curse is now a blessing. You know the Disney programs, don't you? At least the ones I grew up with. You know, there's the pumpkin, there's the rat, and there's all these different things. And the good fairy zaps them, and the pumpkin is a golden church. The rat is a you know, white horse and the frog turns out to be a handsome prince. And we kind of think that's what God will do in our life. When I get saved, you go around with fairy dust touching the areas of my life. But he doesn't do that. He, he keeps the rat a rat, the pumpkin a pumpkin, 
the frog a frog and everything else, but he says, in your case, what was once a curse is now a blessing. That's amazing, isn't it? Look what he says in verse 14 about an amazing comfort. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because, the cause being, the reason is, because the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, this word rest here is a very interesting word. It's an agricultural term. And you have to remember, of course, that the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And, and Peter especially picks up all kinds of imagery, like we're priests and we're kings and all kinds, we're sacrifices, we're all these different things, which are truths of the Old, Tem of the Old Testament. And one of the truths of the Old Testament was this principle of rest and of Sabbath. We meet it in Genesis chapter 2. When God finished his work, he rested from all he had done. And throughout the Old Testament, there is a Sabbath, which means ceasing or resting. There are these Sabbath principles all through the Old Testament. For example, one day in seven, you are to Sabbath. You are to cease from your work and you are to rest. Um, every seven years, there is to be uh, an agricultural Sabbath. You're not to plow your fields. You're, not to, you're to let the land rest so that it will recharge and revitalize and be able to produce good crops again. And there's a year of jubilee and all these different principles. Well. What he says here is an amazing thing. He says that when we're tried, when we're tested, when we go through excruciating pain, the Spirit of God Sabbath-like rests upon us. And it recharges us. It reinvigorates us. It produces supernatural life. That's an amazing thing because you see Satan's determined with our trials to destroy us, to bring us to death, to bring us to despair, to bring us to the end of ourselves. And God says, you need to understand when you're going through the deep waters and the fiery trials, the Holy Spirit of God in a special way rests upon you and recharges you and reinvigorates you and, and makes you more fruitful and more productive and more useful than you would have been. Now, I'm going to end, but we could literally stay here all day and just have people give testimonies. When did you grow the most? When were you most fruitful? When did you learn the most about Jesus? When was your walk deepened and invariably most of us, if not all of us, would say when we were tried. It's supernatural. You have to remember that the Christian life is supernatural. This isn't a self-help. This isn't a 10-step. This is absolutely supernatural and miraculous. From the time of our conversion 
until the time of our resurrection and glorification. And the spirit who brooded over the first creation, he broods over his people, especially when they go through deep waters, and he produces in them amazing abilities to be unusually fruitful because they went through fiery trials. Well, we know the characteristics, don't we? Expression of the love of God. They're to be expected. We're not to be shocked, not to be surprised when they happen. And at times, they can be excruciatingly painful. The command, we are to rejoice every day, every one of us who is a child of God. It is our responsibility to be joyful before the Lord. And that joy comes from the present realization that we share in the fellowships of Christ's suffering and in the future glory that's coming. It will be an eternal standing ovation. We will be clapping and cheering and, you know, people who win the World Series or the Stanley Cup, it doesn't last forever, but it will for the believer on that great day. And then we've seen the comfort that in a special way, supernaturally, the third person of the Trinity rests upon us and gives us life that we'd have never known except we went through the trial. You may be here today and you may think, well, this is a lot of nonsense. You may think, God helps those who helps himself. But God doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps the helpless. And he wants us to come out with our hands up. He wants to frisk us down and pat us down and see if we're trusting in any goodness of our own to get us through. And he wants us to confess that we have nothing going for us but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus wants to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we will find life only in him. Not in our friends, not in our bank account, not in what we own, not in the nice country we live in, but we find life only in Jesus Christ.